So this morning, we just read the story of Mary and Martha, a story we often seen interpreted as something of an object lesson about what it looks like to be a good disciple. A good disciple is not someone who is distracted by the cares of this world, but rather someone who takes the time to be with Jesus and listen to his word. Someone we might think who is rigorous and disciplined in their scripture reading and prayer life. I was actually pretty excited to preach about this story because it's always really resonated with me personally. You see, I've always considered myself a bit of a Martha. That may not surprise some of you who know me well. Um, A type A personality who finds it much easier to make to-do lists and run errands than to sit quietly and listen for the word of God. So this story has always confronted me. I hear this story and think, I get it. I need to devote more time to being with you, Jesus, and less time to my to-do list. But at the same time, a little voice inside me pushes back. But Jesus, I'm doing all these things for you. I'm working at the church, going to seminary, trying to take good care of my family. And do you know how much time it really takes to do all these things in our world today? I wish I had more time to be with you, but somebody's got to make dinner. Maybe this resonates with some of you. Maybe you hear this story and think, yes, I know I should be more like Mary and less like Martha. I need to read my Bible and pray more, almost as if we're ticking off boxes of what's required to be a good Christian. But then Monday morning comes around, all of the bustle of modern life kicks in, work or school or getting our kids off to the myriad of activities that they do, and we get carried away by the whirlwind of our lives, feeling far away from God, and maybe even a bit guilty for not being better Christians. So this story raises, once again, this perennial question of our spiritual life. Why is there such a wide chasm between what I want to do and what I actually do? Why can't we simply be more like Mary and put aside our tasks and distractions and be present with Jesus? Last week, in talking about this story, Father Jonathan quotes Dallas Willard, his phrase, the ruthless elimination of hurry. I've always loved this idea that we need to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our lives, that we need to slow down and create more space to be attentive to God's presence in our lives. And so several years ago, I read a book. It was called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry because I found it's actually easier for me to read a book about something than to actually do it. But then what if the difficulty we have in laying aside our to-do list or whatever it is that's distracting us and to be present with Jesus has more to do with a lack of imagination for what we're being invited into as opposed to simply a lack of willpower? Jesus said, Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. But what is the good portion that he offers that Mary chose and that Martha didn't? 
Our passage from Luke today doesn't really tell us a lot about what the good portion is, at least not explicitly. We simply know that Mary sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. I actually prefer the NRSV's translation here, which says that she sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what he was saying. Because while I'm sure that teaching was a part of it, the latter seems to better capture what I picture as Mary's wonder at being present with Jesus and hanging on his every word. The good portion Mary chose was not only the Lord's teaching, but him. And I wonder, are we reluctant to put down our tasks and choose the good portion because we don't fully appreciate the character of the God who invites us into his presence? Because if we did, would we, like Mary, be dropping everything to be with him? To sit at his feet in wonder? Our Old Testament reading today, which it's from the assigned lectionary, and it may seem a bit of an odd pairing with our gospel story today, except when you start to consider what it reveals about the character of this God who invites us into his presence. Today we read in Genesis about how God appeared to Abraham and Sarah and announced that Sarah would have a son. Now this isn't the first time we read about God appearing to Abraham. In the preceding chapters, Genesis chapters 15 and 17, God had also appeared to Abraham and promised that he would be the father of a multitude of nations with descendants as numerous as the stars. To which Abraham, like Sarah in our story today, laughed because of the sheer impossibility of this given their advanced ages. Upon hearing God announce something so inconceivable, so outlandish that it couldn't possibly be true, they responded, as we might, with laughter. But the Lord responded with these words, and again, this is from the NRSV. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? It's important to note here that what's wonderful is not simply that God is demonstrating raw power by promising a son despite the seeming impossibility of it. Rather, it's that God is using his power to fulfill his promises, the promises he made to Abraham to make him the father of a multitude of nations. God found a way to bring a child into the world despite Abraham and Sarah's body limitations and their doubtful reactions. God found a way to fulfill his promises even when it seemed hopeless to them. This character of God is divinely steadfast in his promises even when all seems hopeless, calls to mind one of my favorite passages found in the book of Lamentations. Lamentations was written in response to the tragic destruction of Jerusalem and the temple by the Babylonians. Now, things may seem quite troubling to some of you today in light of what's going on in the world. But these people experienced the destruction of their homes and exile to a foreign land. This is how the author describes the scene when Jerusalem was under siege and the people began turning on one another. Even the jackals offered the breast and nursed their young. But my people has become cruel like the ostriches in the wilderness. 
The tongue of the infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives them anything. The writer is describing a scene where the people's sin and greed has led to their downfall, and as it so often does, to the suffering of the most vulnerable as a result. Yet, in the middle of describing all this devastation, a society of people turning against each other, perhaps some of you feel a little bit like that today, the author breaks in and arrests our attention with the following words. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion. My portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. In the midst of overwhelming despair, the likes of which most of us have never known, the author recognized the Lord as his portion. Israel understood its desperate predicament as being the result of its own sin. Israel's failure to keep its covenant with God. But here, the writer recognized that God, God could be trusted to be faithful to his covenant. And that there remained the possibility of forgiveness of sin and restoration to new life. Which gave the writer hope, despite the seeming hopelessness of his situation. And Israel's hope for restoration ultimately was fulfilled. We see Israel's hope begin to be brought to fulfillment in the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, described in Luke chapter 1. Once again, like Abraham and Sarah in our story today, we have a childless couple of advanced age who the Lord announces will have a son despite the seeming impossibility of it. A son who will prepare the way for the Lord. And after receiving their promised son, Zechariah points to the coming of Jesus as the fulfillment of God's covenant to Abraham and to Israel. Zechariah says the Lord has shown the mercy promised to our ancestors and has remembered his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our ancestor Abraham, the oath we heard about in our reading today. And we hear Zechariah prophesy that, prophesy that in Jesus, the fulfillment of God's promise, the dawn from on high shall break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. In Jesus, we see God fulfilling his promise that his people will be rescued from sin and made free. They will be brought from darkness to light and from the shadow of death to peace. And in our reading from Colossians from last week, we heard that this promise of life is life of Christ, this promise of life in Christ is extended to us. As Paul writes in chapter 1, verse 20, and through him, through Jesus, God was pleased to reconcile himself to all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. 
So, what is the good portion that Mary chose? The good portion Jesus offered to Mary was himself. The fulfilled promise of a God of perfect faithfulness. A new life of peace, even when peace feels impossible. And the more we encounter the reality of Christ and his kingdom, the more, like Mary, we could be drawn to him in wonder. Wonder. Sophia Cavaletti, a biblical scholar who's renowned for her work on religious education for children, writes about the role of wonder in the religious life of a child. And I think this is an area where we could follow Jesus' advice and become more like children ourselves. She describes wonder like a magnet, writing that the nature of wonder is not a force that pushes us passively from behind. It is situated ahead of us and attracts us with, his, with invisible force toward the object of our astonishment. It makes us advance toward it filled with enchantment. I imagine Mary drawn to Jesus like this, sitting at his feet full of wonder. And we can try and make ourselves spend time with Jesus out of a sense of duty or guilt or obligation. Or we can allow ourselves to be drawn to him because we are filled with wonder. Wonder at God's loving faithfulness, demonstrated throughout history and exemplified by Jesus shedding his blood on the cross so that we could have new life. When you spend time with Jesus, are you filled with wonder? Or like Martha, are you so task-oriented and preoccupied that you miss the wonder that's right in front of you? As someone who's going through seminary, recently ordained, you think I know something about spending time with Jesus? But recently, with all the work and studies and juggling in my life, I found I was experiencing this parched feeling in my soul. And I decided that rather than more reading, what I really needed was to spend at least five minutes each day enjoying some beautiful aspect of God's creation. And given it's the middle of summer in Texas, <laughs> you have to dig a little deep to find something beautiful. But I did. Each day now, I lay aside my tax and tasks and distractions and spend a few minutes sitting out on my back patio just listening to the cicadas. You may not all find that beautiful, but I do. <laughs> this, I find this extraordinary, undulating symphony of nature all around me. And I think the reason it fills me with so much peace, such a sense of closeness to God, is that it takes me back to my childhood. Growing up in the 80s in San Antonio, Texas, uh, before the internet and cell phones, I know you kids don't remember that, what that's like. Um, but as a child, I would run around outside until dark with no to-do lists, no distractions, just experiencing the joy of being totally present to God's creation. The whirring sound, the summer warmth, the smell of grass, 
I was completely free to wonder about God. And this wonder about God ultimately led me to his revelation of himself in Jesus, where I could listen and learn from him. So what does sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to him, look like for you today? Does it look like one more item on your to-do list? If so, then it's possible you may never get to it, given all the other demands for our attention and our busy world today. Or do you think of it as making space for God to come close to you in scripture and prayer and even in the marvels of creation so that he can draw you deeper into the wonder of his love? And as our hearts are filled more and more with wonder at our God, the more our desire and capacity to spend time with him will grow. Again, Sophia Cavaletti writes, When wonder becomes a fundamental attitude of our spirit, it will confer a religious character to our whole life because it makes us live with a consciousness of being plunged into an unfathomable and incommensurable reality. The mysterious reality of God's kingdom. As we prepare to come to the table together, I invite you to join me as we consider our wonderful God, a faithful God who is steadfast to his promises even when all seems hopeless, who fulfilled his promises in Christ and in Christ offers us peace and new life, a tender God who invites us to lay aside our tasks and distractions and receive rest and renewal in his presence and an astonishingly creative God who displays his majesty to us, even in the smallest things. And consider in what ways in the coming week, Jesus is inviting you to draw close to him, to sit at his feet and listen in wonder. Lord Jesus, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and lead us to choose your good portion. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm.